mass of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my country. Time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. Good morning and welcome to another beautiful fall morning. It's cool, it's crisp, but it's clear. It's, well, you can almost see the hills through the smog. Um, We need rain. They're anticipating snow in the mountains this week, but we Central Californians are going to be between two storms, one to the north, one to the south, and I'll still be watering the garden. What can I say? We are two weeks away from Thanksgiving. It's time for a little rain, folks. Um, But all kidding aside, this past week has been quite the week. Climaxing with a Wall Street Journal front page on Friday afternoon that kind of encapsulated President Trump's very bad, oh God, let's call a spade a spade. It was a terrible week. Three State Department officials testified before the House Intelligence Committee about what I like to call l'affaire Ukraine. All three amazing storytellers, foreign um, policy professionals, and most importantly, patriots. I mean, these people bleed red, white, and blue. And they do it. Um, all of them extremely well um, credentialed, they do it for far less than they could make in the private sector. You know, it made me stop and think. I took the Foreign Service exam when I was a senior in college, um, and I passed it, and I regret now that I didn't pursue it I didn't pursue it because I was married. We were in in the late stages of the Vietnam War, and I was married in my junior year So, um, to someone who was in service. And so um, it was that fact that prevented me from pursuing it. But I, I was listening to these people and thinking, wow, it would have been wonderful to have worked with some of these people. But... Even while Marie Yovanovitch was testifying before the the House Intelligence Committee, in parallel, a Washington, D.C. jury was finding Donald Trump's longest-serving political savant. You know, we've seen the pictures of the two of them as really young men. Um, Roger Stone was found guilty on seven charges. I mean, shocking. The, the Mueller team did better with Roger Stone than they did with Paul Manafort. Without having all the, the you know, piles and piles of documentary evidence, they went for seven charges. They got seven guilty plea, uh, verdicts, uh, which is a 
about 50% better than they did in Manafort's case. But what did they get him for? Oh, obstruction of justice. One count of that. Five counts of lying to Congress. That was where he kind of found himself in a no-win position. You know, you can't very well say, well, I was just kidding when I talked to Congress. Um, And one count of intimidating a witness. Now, what does this mean for all the maligning that's been done of the Mueller report? It means that six out of six Trump associates who were indicted by the Mueller team were either pled guilty or were tried and found guilty of serious federal crimes. You know, I have often said that I judge people by the company they keep. And if we look at that and we judge people by the company he or she keeps, this uh, penalty of mugshots does not enhance the president's stature. And in the lower left-hand corner of the very same Wall Street Journal front page where you had headlines blazing about the impeachment inquiry testimony and how effective it was and the conviction of Roger Stone, down in the left corner was a story about Rudy Giuliani and the fact that the... uh, Southern District of New York, the independent Southern District of New York, has a a criminal investigation underway into whether Rudy Giuliani's Ukrainian activities went beyond just failure to register as the agent of a foreign government. Whatever else did he do with Lem and Igor? The feds want to know whether, in addition to being paid to be an attorney for Lem and Igor and the President of the United States, interesting set of clients, whether Mr. Giuliani also stood to personally profit from a liquefied natural gas deal in addition to the work that he did as a foreign lobbyist and as President Trump's point person on l'affaire Ukraine. Now, if all of this was not enough, bad news for one week, no wonder the man needed to go and get a checkup at at, um, Walter Reed yesterday. Because in addition to all of that front-page news In the Wall Street Journal on Friday afternoon, more than that, what wasn't on the front page, was we are bound for the United States Supreme Court on two and possibly three separate tracks. The New York Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the Manhattan DA could subpoena the president's tax records as part of an investigation into payments he made to two porn stars just before the 2016 election. At issue is were the reimbursement payments made to Michael Cohn properly recorded and reported, recorded in the Trump books appropriately, and then reported correctly correctly on his state taxes. Ooh. 
So the court demurred on the issue of prosecuting a sitting president, but it did affirm that he could be the subject of an investigation, especially in an instance where the impact on his daily work was minimal, said the, the, the circuit court. So a similar suit brought by the chairman of the House Ways and Mains Committee um, under a 1924 law that was passed in the, uh, at the end of the Teapot Dome scandal um, is seeking eight years of the president's taxes to prove to the, that the IRS has properly audited and handled them, which is another law that says that the IRS must audit the president's taxes every year and to assure legislators that no new legislation is needed to ensure the proper taxation of future presidents. That one is also now bound for the United States Supreme Court. The next questions that the Supreme Court are going to hear arguments about are the president's arguments for absolute immunity from investigation, oversight, or probity. And that will come right before Christmas, guys, because the circuit court hearing is now scheduled in the Don McGahn subpoena um, situation for December 10th. And depending on what the court says then, we may or may not hear from John Bolton, who says, if you want to hear from me, you're going to have to subpoena me. And um, Adam Shifter says, I'm not going to subpoena you until this case is settled. Okay. Now, what could happen? Could we have another really terrible week in the second week of December? Will the Supreme Court agree to hear the president's arguments of absolute immunity from investigation, oversight, or probity? Or will the court that last ruled eight to nothing against Nixon's similar arguments Will the Supreme Court say, no, we are not going to hear that case, making the lower court ruling stand? Now's the test of the so-called conservative court. Both Gorsuch and Kavanaugh testified in their confirmation hearings that the Nixon ruling was, and I'm going to quote, a great and important decision, unquote. Looking at the front page of the Wall Street Journal last Friday, if you were John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, the man who may have to sit as the trial judge in the Senate of the United States early next year, do you want to have to rule on these cases? I don't think so. I'm not sure how the vote will go in chambers, but I don't think so. And we'll be back in just a moment to talk a little bit more about litigation and wringing hands. You're listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And you know, Vince just pointed out to me that I'm into the weeds. 
and he's absolutely right. You know, I just think every now and then you got to stop and summarize when it seems that the wheels are coming off. And but doesn't it always seem like the wheels? It seems like the wheels are always about to come off. And I think that's we're still where we're at. He's still president. He's not going to. He's not going anywhere. I and and I think at the moment I would agree with you. Um, but then remember, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Nixon. And while I think there are few parallels between this situation and Nixon, um, uh, it was just a very different time. I, I think that I think that the the crush, you know, the the potpourri of, of bad um, uh, of bad court decisions and 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 really illuminating um, television and the criminality of people who, you know, served in his campaign, et cetera. All of this has a kind of cumulative effect that is blunting um, the reelection numbers despite a roaring economy. You know, I, I got nervous in September and moved some money out of the market, and now I'm looking at, a, at, at money that I could have left on the table, that I did leave on the table. Um, but I'm still concerned that um, a lot of this is um, is very fragile, and and that Dow twenty eight thousand. I know, but that's twenty eight thousand. But that's so unrealistic when you look at um, the average income in the United States and the heavy dependence we have on consumerism in this economy. I mean, I don't know where that number is coming from, except the fact that interest rates are so low, you can't afford not to be in the market. But we were here in the earliest moments of 2001, having been warned by George Bush during the election the year before that this was, you know, fragile and vaporistic. Um, We had a huge crash. And then we repeated that exercise eight years later with a whole different set of highly speculative investment. And if you look at the darlings of the IPO market this year, including Uber and Lyft and <clears throat> what was expected to be the biggest blockbuster of all, we WeWork, um, what you see is that all of those investments are worth less today than people who bought them at Okay, we even see Apple with some fragility in their numbers. So, um, you know, the basics of the economy are being hurt by this trade war. Um, And those and the impact of that is going to be long lasting. And for the first time in the history of the United States, we ran a trillion dollar deficit in the budget this year. So I'm going to ask again, while you're looking at a 28,000 Dow, how long can a country on the way to being um, having a debt equal to their GDP be the reserve currency of the world, especially when the Chinese are beginning to try to create an alternative reserve um, system and when we look at Bitcoin. So all of those headwinds are there despite the number on the Dow. Um, so, you know, gravity is, 
it is a force of nature. That which goes up must come down. And it and it will. And then goes back up again. It it bounces, but I got bad news for you. If you are buying in at the top of this market and it falls by 30 or 40%, it will take you the next um, recovery to recover to that point. In other words, in my situation and a lot of my friends, because we were in the market in 2000, we were in the market in 2007, eight, we are just now seeing our uh, portfolios come back in terms of not the Dow, but value, dollar value. They're just recovered. What happens if this market goes down again? Thus, I took money off the table. You know, I still believe in that old saying it's Solomon Smith Barney about, you know, I don't have time to earn it again. There is a limit. So <clears throat> I, I think you have to be careful. So much for, for um, a quick lesson in U.S. economics, although the Wall Street Journal this very morning is talking about the fact that this so-called booming economy um, is is not having the bellow like buoying the president's reelection numbers because, and I agree with the Wall Street Journal, all this other extraneous stuff is pulling those numbers down. And we saw that um, in the recent uh, off-year elections. We saw a, a 100% turnover uh, of control in Virginia from Republicans where it's, they've been in control for, I can't remember when they weren't, um, to uh, now having both houses of the legislature and the governor all being Democrats. And there are some pretty radical things that they're talking about doing in Virginia. Now, whether or not the blue dogs in Virginia allow it to happen, we will see. But that happened last month. Uh, the governor of Kentucky wrapped himself around Donald Trump and lost. And yesterday, a Republican candidate in a reliably red state like Louisiana could not unseat the Democratic governor despite several um, trips from President Trump. So if you read recent polls... There is trouble in River City. Um, Georgia could become purple. Um, the issues in Texas around immigration and, um, and the president's wall will have an impact on um, districts along the border as well as, uh, I think, through larger Texas because Texas, like California, thinks of itself as being a republic. So... There are a lot of headwinds. And so while, you know, getting back to the really bad week that President Trump had last week in terms of optics um, and associations um, and, and the court fights, I mean, the, all the, lit the litigation and the legislative hand-wringing is completely unnecessary. It's a self-inflicted wound. If only the president believed that he had to play by the same rules as everyone else. So let's talk about those rules after a short commercial break.
listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back. And the, the question in my mind continues to be, you know, there are people who call Trump the chaos president. I think that's part of his uh, part of his genius, part of his M.O. But um, I think sometimes it steps on his own message. You know, a whole lot of this litigation and legislative hand-wringing is totally unnecessary. Again, it's unnecessary if only the president believed that he had to play by the same rules as everyone else. There would be a whole lot less curiosity about Donald Trump's taxes if Donald had done what every other candidate for the last 50 years has done and released his taxes during the 2016 campaign. The decision not to put his business interests in a blind trust, but rather to delegate running the company to his adult sons would probably have been completely eliminated, would probably have completely eliminated the extra attention around his taxes. A blind trust is a blind trust. Now, the boys, the boys would have had to go off and find a job. Heck, they could have been in the administration along with their sister. Um, and the same is true if the president had embraced a narrower view of what constitutes executive privilege rather than blocking all members of his cabinet and the civil service from any testimony before any congressional committee over the last three years. Every president, save Nixon, has acknowledged Congress's constitutional responsibility of oversight. But of course, subjecting yourself to oversight, working with the Congress, okay, presupposes that the president had been more scrupulous in selecting the people he surrounds himself with. Remember, Chris Christie in his book details how um, that committee of 140 people working on the transition had five vetted nominees for every cabinet post, Um, all of them professionals, all of them experienced, all of them politically experienced, all of them Republican. And Jared Kushner took those binders and tossed them in a dumper, in a dumpster, the day after the election. And among the people who actually were vetted are two people who serve in the administration today. And they are Secretary of Health and Human Services, Azar, um, and FBI Director Christopher Wray. Both of them recommended to the president in chaotic situations by Chris Christie. Again, if the president had been more scrupulous, if he'd listened to the professionals uh, acknowledging that he was put in there to break up the so-called deep state um, if he'd also taken the time to um, let the pros, I mean, people like Chris Christie, who've known him for 20 years, 
you know, provide that kind of advice and guidance, just think what a successful presidency this could have been. Which brings us to the impeachment inquiry before the Senate Intelligence Committee. And again, once again, the fact that this impeachment inquiry is going on after the Mueller report landed with a duh is an unforced error that stems from surrounding himself with yes persons and an inability to separate his personal needs from those of the nation and the free world he signed up to lead. And then there was his Friday tweet while Ambassador Yanovich was, um, was testifying about the ambassador's first posting to Somalia. Uh, another insult, some lawyer said, an effort at intimidation, not just of her as a witness on the stand, but of other people who might be following her. Um, but what happened, the net effect of that was that it reduced the Republican committee members to a bunch of simmering sycophants who couldn't say enough nice things about the former ambassador to the Ukraine. And she earned those compliments. I mean, this is a woman with 33 years of dedicated service to the United States in a number of very, very difficult postings. Um, and, and her sincerity uh, is transparent. Um, and it, it underscores, I mean, that tweet just underscored all of the unsavory and inexplicable ways in which Miss, it's tough to say this, Yanovich was treated by the president and his extraordinary channel of shadow diplomacy. I ask you, Donald Trump Jr. and is supposed to be running Trump Inc. And yet he was making statements about the competence of the ambassador to the Ukraine on Twitter, in speeches, etc., with no portfolio whatsoever. And that's just tawdry. It's unnecessary. It's embarrassing. And yes, it's shameful. Even Jim Jordan realized it was shameful. Following up on a Facebook, a Wall Street Journal editorial that a friend of mine posted in Facebook, um, complaining that the president has a right to any foreign policy, and I'm going to quote this friend of mine, even if it's stupid and everyone else serves at his pleasure. Well, I disagree with this friend. You know, I love him dearly, but sometimes you can disagree with your friends. First, um, the executive branch of government is made up of two types of employees. Political appointees who tend to share a political philosophy with the president, but until the Trump administration have universally been believed to serve the national interest. That means that they, when they go out into um, a diplomatic posting. I mean, there's nothing new about Sondland's um, appointment as the ambassador to the European Union, which is largely an economic um, uh, construct in terms of how it deals with the United States. 
uh, there's absolutely nothing unusual about a multimillionaire who, or a billionaire who donated a million dollars to the campaign getting that kind of assignment. There is also nothing unusual about the State Department identifying a, a, a Foreign Service officer like Marie Yovanovitch uh, uh, to be a presidential appointee and ambassador um, with the advice and consent of the Senate to a more of a substantive posting where where our political and economic and national security interests are really um, uh, on the line and and it's important to have um, somebody with years and years of experience as a foreign service officer to manage those relationships. So both types are perfectly appropriate, but they always have been based on a belief in, and one of the things that advice and consent is involved in, involved in is, is, is the representation of fundamental American values of freedom and fairness, a support and an underpinning that this, you know, for global rules, rule of law, international relationships. And in their personification, these political appointees, we've always believed that one of the things that advice and consent uh, contributed to was to make sure that we always represent ourselves on the world stage. We, the United States of America, we are, in the words of Admiral McRaven, we are the good guys. And I want you to think about that. We are the good guys. And we'll be back in just a moment to talk about why that matters in foreign policy. You're listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back. And yes, you are entitled to a stupid foreign policy, but there are a whole lot of career civil servants, people who spend their entire career in service of the country, in in providing their expertise and experience um, to provide a resource to both the appointed leader of cabinet position at cabinet positions and to the president. That's what the National Security Council is all about. It's about experts, experts in Russia, experts in Ukraine, experts in China, experts in Japan, experts in Asian trade, etc., who are there and who study and who research and who work with people in country so that they can provide the best picture, the best advice to the President of the United States and his cabinet. That's their job. Okay. Um, 
And yes, in a lot of cases, those are people who could make a whole lot more money in the private sector. And I've been guilty many a time of referring to the bureaucracy as unelected, unaccountable, and anonymous. And if you have ever opened the Federal Register at random, that's where all the regulations that really govern us, not congressional law, but the regulations that stem from congressional law, which is usually more of a wish list, um, really are recorded. If you've ever just opened that, pa- that book to a page at random, that term does come to mind as your eyes glaze over reading. But the thing that I was struck by in watching Secretary Kent and Ambassadors Taylor and Yanovich testify the thing that struck me was their sincerity, their belief in the United States as the good guys. I believe in the United States as the good guys, and I bet most of you do too. So you can't help but be struck by their patriotism and professionalism and the depth of their knowledge and experience. So if I were president and I wanted to do the right thing for the American people. And I sincerely believe that the president wants to do the right thing for the American people. I, you know, there, there is nothing, if we are the good guys, then the continuity of American policy based on American values is important because those values of freedom and fairness are the bedrock of what makes America great. It is our entrepreneurship. It is our freedom to take risk. It is our ability to express ourselves. It is the sense that our government does not take from us in an underhanded way. And, and, and some of you will remember that um, I have a friend who actually is a Ukrainian um, originally, and, and she and I had a conversation recently um, that I uh, related to most of you in early October about the endemic corruption, about the, the uphill fight that President Zelensky has if he really wants Ukraine to be a Western-style economically viable. And this is a country with great resources and great people. Um, but, but it needs to free itself of corruption in order to achieve two things, um, prosperity and freedom. And it needs our help in doing that, both because of our example and our fundamental commitment to um, rooting out corruption in our own government, in our own um, local and state and federal government, and rooting out corruption where it imposes a burden on the people of countries with whom we are allied um, or opposed. But the Ukrainians need us for something else. They need us to help them to defend themselves against naked Russian aggression. And never before in my life 
have I, do I have memory of our career foreign service recommending to a president that uh, certain types of defensive or certain kinds of assistance are needed to check the Russians' naked aggression and have that president not respond forcefully to those recommendations. The Russians are not our friends. Okay? When we, when we walk away, in, as we did in Syria, they come and take over our bases. Um, you probably saw it on Facebook, um, but they were, uh, it, it was a coup for them. Secondly, when it comes to stupid foreign policy, the Constitution says that the president's job is to faithfully execute the laws that are written and passed by Congress. Congress has the power of the purse. Congress has the power to advice and consent over both executive and judicial nominees. Congress has the power of oversight to make sure the president is faithfully executing and Democrats won back the House of Representatives in 2008, in 2018, because the people wanted a check on the president. And it's not personal, Donald. Heck, Republicans took over in 2010 to check Barack Obama. Holding the United States Senate may be the last remaining check in our government in 2020. And on, on another Another um, day, we're going to talk about that um, in a more substantive and serious way. But if the president really felt what his unappointed and unconfirmed uh, amigos had done on behalf, on his behalf in the Ukraine, if that was in keeping in his mind with his constitutional responsibilities, then he would welcome inquiry. He would send everybody up to the hill to explain what he had done. And the fact that he didn't do that and that on Friday afternoon, David Holmes, the political attache in Kiev, finally came forward with new information. I'm afraid of what other shoe may still drop. And while I am not, con I am not yet convinced. I'm, in fact, I'm, I'm pretty much. I, I sit there. Oh God! And I hate getting up at six, at five forty-five in the morning to watch these things at nine o'clock. If only we'd known we were going to be a continental um, nation when they built Washington, they'd have put it someplace in the middle of the country, where it wouldn't be a three-hour time difference. But I've listened to all of this testimony, and I'm very concerned from a competence and management, from my, the business part of my head, is very concerned about the competence and management aspects of this. The political part, the, 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 the patriot part of me, wants us to be the good guys, wants us to be the shining example, the city on the hill that Ronald Reagan spoke of with such passion. But the realist in me is only looking for simple ethics because that's what I expect of a CEO. And the president of the United States is a CEO. 
So as I listen to these people, I am not sure that, you know, in fact, if I were a jury, I'd be hung <laughs> as to whether or not there is enough here to impeach a president, especially a year before election. But I do think there are some things that we can learn from this inquiry, which would be beneficial to us as a nation moving forward toward the 2020 general election. And we'll be back in just a moment to outline those. Listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And so, at the end of this rambling whatever, um, again, I, I so far I don't have a, I don't. If I were the jury, I'd be hung. But I do think there are some things that we can learn from this experience. And we're spending so much money and time and attention on it at the expense of doing the people's business that I think we should get something out of it. So here are some ideas. I am so over 2016. It's done. Yeah, the Russians interfered. The Chinese learned some lessons that they're applying right now in Taiwan. Again, talk about that another day. But the point is, in 2019, I want to do the people's business. And that means stop fighting old political wars and figure out how to prevent malign interference in the future. Okay? Stop right this second making excuses for any candidate who solicits foreign help in any campaign in any way. And that means strengthening our laws about foreign contributions, strengthening our laws on foreign cyber activities, and making or and and strengthening our laws about making or or accepting or soliciting foreign interference of any kind in a campaign. That should be a federal crime, with penalties that are sufficient to persuade anyone who is teetering on the edge of collusion. To stop before they start. Require the FBI to investigate any potential foreign business dealings of siblings and children of senior U.S. officials to avoid any potential taint of corruption. Because if you want to argue about other countries' corruptions impeding their people's route to freedom and prosperity, then you better be cleaner than Lot's wife. Corruption is a a characteristic of authoritarian governments. And so the U.S. Congress must use what it learns in this impeachment inquiry to pass laws that are necessary to make it crystal clear the difference between what are authoritarian governments and ours. Putin, Erdogan, and Xi reward corruption. Corruption steals from the people and rewards the thieves. The United States punishes it because it is not in the national interest of a free people. 
It's that simple. So if you need the FBI to investigate what Hunter Biden did, then by all means, let's have the FBI investigate it openly, publicly, and publish the findings. That either means there is an indictment or we say there is nothing here. But let's pass laws that clarify this ambiguity. And when I say precedent, just as we end today's conversation, I want to remind my very same friends who have found excuses for President Trump in l'affaire Ukraine that they will scream bloody murder when the shoe is on the other foot, when Democrats benefit from the same behavior by their operatives and foreign governments. Democratic governments, and I mean small d, in other words, the United States of America is better than this. And we'll see you again soon. Subscribe to the Reimagine America podcast at reimagineamerica.org and ricochet.com. Email Joyce at Joyce at Reimagine America Radio. Follow her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy, all one word. And you can follow the show at Reimagine Radio. This has been Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Take a minute now and go to www.reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum, donate, tell others, and sign up to receive future podcasts. That's reimagineamerica.org. And join us again next week for Reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.